This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. I knew 30 seconds into my portrait shoot with Sonia Ulrich that I had to have her on the podcast. We talked about her growing up in high society, moving across Europe, living in different towns, and at times alone as a teenager, and coming to the U.S. for a festival. Oh, did I forget to say she was in a cult? Yeah, she was a Rajneeshi. Oh my God, what a messed up human I must be. First, my mother had the impression that I was a worthless human. I didn't measure up beauty-wise. I didn't measure up academically. And finally, she just left me. So that was the first message. And then the second message that the spiritual group who I thought loved and appreciated me didn't think so about me at all. Slam bam, thank you ma'am, was more of the feeling. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. My guests have ranged from Oscar winners, sports writers, college professors, fashion designers, and professional trumpet player at Santa Anita Racetrack, Jay Cohen. So I started studying with a great LA trumpet player, Bill Bing who got a phone call during one of my lessons and said, I can't do this job, but I have an adult student here who's just fine. So I went out, it was a church job, and on that, a gentleman named Keith Snell said, oh, you're new in town, but there's an opening at Santa Anita Park. So what does a trumpet player do? He says, oh, let me explain it to you. So he took me under his wing explained everything to do to get the job. There was an audition. I went out and I got the audition. I won. And they refused to admit this, and I know it's the truth. I got the job because I fit into the uniform. I don't care what they say. I was the size of the guy who was taking the time off. And I've asked the person that's hired me many times, and he just looked. He he, He won't admit it. I know that's how I got the job. The rest of my conversation with Jake can be found on our archives at justagoodconversation.com. Let's take a quick break for a sponsor before diving into my conversation with Sanja Ulrich. Maine Farmhouse Brands was started by Dan McCool, a healthcare professional. His goal was to make premium soap. Most people may not realize how important the right soap is for their health and the difference between soap and detergent. Soap is made from natural ingredients like animal and plant fats. Whereas detergent is made from synthetic, often harsh chemicals, even fossil fuels like petroleum. Maine farmhouse brands mix their own soap with natural ingredients, free from harsh chemicals. So if you want to keep your skin healthy and clean, I would recommend using Maine farmhouse brand soap instead of detergent. You can find their body wash, shaved soaps, laundry soap, and beard oils, and more at mainefarmhousebrands.com. I have got a new friend on the podcast, a great professor, an anthropology guru. How are you? I'm very well. And don't forget the behavior sciences component. (laughs) Yes, the behavior behavioral science is like the most important part. It's actually anthropology is part of it. Right. Yes. So I teach two disciplines, behavior sciences, which include psychology, sociology, political science, and anthropology. And then I'm an anthropologist. Do you get, does does it still kind of 
are you kind of shocked when people still call you like professor or Rick, Bria, please, will you, well, <laughs> professor, no, no. So, professor. So here, I mean, here's the thing. So in a university, um, we all have the honorary title of professor. So mm-hmm. all the students call us professor, but on the actually legality side of things, you only a professor if you are tenured faculty and you've reached a certain amount of time as uh, as a full-time tenured faculty member. So you first get assistant professor and something else. Associate? Yeah, associate, assistant, yeah. First associate, then assistant, and eventually you become a full professor. So those are uh, the titles uh, to your academic CV, I guess. But all students are trained to address us as we all have, as if we're all the same, right. which we are in a way. Sound like you're in the army. Totally. <laughs> First assistant, I know. professor. Yeah, I know, I know. I have, I, I have had the privilege of sharing an office with Annie, Dr. Wilson, uh, Dr. Wetmore, excuse me, and she has had this office for 10 years, but she's no longer uh, physically in California. She's in Texas. So I have to give up that office. Are you? (laughs) I do. I have to give it up because um, they decided, look, we need to have a uh, a faculty member who's actually on campus. So so it's like, okay, so I could pretend to have been a a real faculty (laughs) member, a real permanent forever faculty member. And no. Starting fall of next year, I, I'm going to be in a cubicle somewhere. <laughs> oh, no. Do you know where? Heck no. Nobody knows. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, well that building is going under complete construction. That building needs to be torn down. It's an right. old building from the 60s, and all the metal rebars are sticking out, and yeah. Well, maybe you'll get a new building soon. Yeah, right, and then I get an office. Yeah, you get an office with a window. Oh, yeah. I do have a window, right? Yeah. Now. <laughs> do you want a sunset window or a sunrise window? What do you want? Sunset. I'm not there at sunrise. <laughs> <laughs> so my research with you has been fascinating, right? So we did the photo shoot a couple of weeks ago and then, you know, reading little story. And it has just been unbelievable, your path. Can you tell me what it was like growing up in Europe? It was so many things. Um, What's your like first memory, youngest memory? Uh, youngest memory? Um, <laughs> I don't know if you can put that on your podcast. <laughs> I remember. We have, can. I remember my mom changing my diaper and using a certain cream called Penaten cream. And it is a cream that she gave me as a gift when I first became a mother. And I would open the container and I would smell that old cream. And I immediately went back to when I was two years old or something like that. It was the first uh, olfactory memory I had of being a very little girl uh, that this my mom used that cream. Wow. It was like, you know, a diaper cream. Sure. Yeah. So you asked me. What and that triggered that. I mean, two years old, that's a long time. Even, even younger, I guess. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a deep memory to yeah. go that yes. far back. Yeah. And that scent. taught, yeah, that taught me a long time ago that uh, one of the most lasting memories are olfactory memories. And that if you work with Alzheimer's patients, which I did for quite a while, uh, smell can bring back good stuff or bad stuff 
I don't know if you ever seen the movie Sybil, uh, the yeah. woman with the many personalities. Mm -hmm. She would smell bleach, and that would set her off into post-traumatic stress disorder because her mother used to give her enemas with bleach. So it was a very horrific childhood abuse issue, but it was that bleach that finally broke through her psychosis. Right. So yeah, so that's in answer to your question. Okay. Well, how was it growing up though after you had uh, got out of diapers? Okay, right. <laughs> you know, it, it 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 was very difficult. Yeah, you know, you have to understand my um mother has been a very conflicted person who grew up in a high society. She came from a family of doctors. She knew the good things in life, but she ended up being a single divorced mother with me and she ended up raising me on purpose in the countryside in Germany. Really? So she was a high society lady. She used to clean the house in high heels and makeup. And we lived in a very old-fashioned German, North German village. And for me, this was very conflicting because I wanted to be like the village children. And my mother was, yes, she wanted that too, but only to a certain degree. Wow. I couldn't speak the local dialect, you know, everybody spoke a certain dialect. I only knew Hochdeutsch, which is High German, which is a language of the sophisticated elites. Is it that different? Uh, you, yes. Plattdeutsch, uh, yeah, you, you, you barely can understand it. Wow. It's almost like a Southern German, Bavarian, and a High German. It's like a different language, just about. Now, this is West Germany, correct? Yes, West Germany. At the time. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, growing up, um, I had to fulfill my mother's desires of being a beautiful little doll that she could dress up and style the hair and take to fancy restaurants and all that. But then my everyday life was that of village children, rural village children who, who talked differently, who dressed differently. And I couldn't really be friends with them because she just didn't want them around the house. So it was very conflicting. And the fact that she was a teacher. She was, I guess, gymnasium, which is like high school, but... Um, on a college track high school in Germany. So my mom had very high academic expectations of me and I wasn't able to deliver. And it was because of learning um, deficits. I had learning disabilities, dyslexia and all kinds of stuff. Hey, that was dyslexia, <laughs> there we go, hey. <laughs> uh, also a severe math disability, but they didn't get that for That's long That's probably time. from dyslexia though. Could be, yeah, yeah, yeah. But flipping your numbers, yeah, just not being able to comprehend. Yep. Um, so, according to the school system in Germany, my mother was advised that I am intellectually inferior and I should never be expected to go to high school or any higher academia, which was a big blow to my mom's ego because. She came from a family of doctors, and everybody has university degrees. And her child, not being an intellectually compatible, was hard for her. And unfortunately, I heard these conversations. These oh. conversations were done parent-teacher with me there. 
So imagine being like eight years old, hearing that you're considered so stupid that you should could never ever even graduate from high school, that you might as well ride the yellow school bus with a helmet on. So for my mother, that was so insulting that she literally put a little desk next to her desk at home in her home office and I would have to do homework next to her as she was grading uh, high school papers and you know it was the kind of environment if you have a C or lower don't even come home don't don't come home so there was a lot of um, anxiety on my part. Not only did I always every morning have to have my hair done, which was a very painful, she was a rough woman. So my hair always had to be looking cute and I had to be dressed differently, high fashion compared to all the other children, you know, the normal children. So I got teased for looking different. I got trouble at home for not talking perfectly high German and for not bringing home the A's and B's. So growing up as a little girl, it was, it, I couldn't please her or right. anybody really for right. that matter. And the more anxious I got, the more academically I would freeze. So I was a poor student, and I, my mother was very unhappy with that, and she let me know. So, oh, that's yeah. tough. It's tough, yeah. And then we moved away from the village to a small town called Bingen am Rhein. So Bingen am Rhein is between Cologne and Frankfurt, right by the Rhine River. Okay. Very beautiful place. And... Um, we actually lived in the in a very luxurious part of that town, and later on we moved into an, an old villa which looked like a castle. So very, was she still teaching at the time? She was still teaching at the time, but that was at the end of her teaching career. Um, How old are you at this time? I was twelve. Okay. Yeah. So at that point, preteen. Um, you're. I was preteen. By that point, we lived in the little castle-like building. And um, what was that like living? I mean, did you understand you were uh, living yes, in a little castle? It's just, it's just adorable. It was one of. It was a building actually only uh, from the nineteen twenties, Casa Angelina, but it was built to look like a medieval castle and a very small scale. Wow. Uh, which was very, very cool. And, um, yeah, I had a little room in one of the turrets, <laughs> right? Just beautiful. It was lovely. It was just an, it was such a nice fantasy. It really was lovely. Wow. Like a little princess living in her little castle. Of course, there were people above, you know, below us and all that, but it <laughs> didn't matter. Um, it was very special. And then um, my mother had what I would say a breakdown she was uh, just a few years shy of being eligible to get a pension as a teacher. Literally, just like two years shy of that. She was in her f in f yeah, 40s, beginning, no, I guess middle 40s. And she just couldn't take it anymore. And she got a, she just dropped out of society. She decided she could no longer be a teacher. She didn't want to be a mother. She didn't like any of that. And she had already lived a very scandalous life um, as a social elite woman who would have sexual relations with all the prominent men 
in town, wherever she went. So she had reasons to want to disappear okay. because she had ruined several marriages with her behavior, things that I didn't know about until later, of course. So she ended up getting involved with uh, the Rajneesh movement, which at the time had m many um, ashrams all throughout Germany, and the ashrams consisted of residential places that offered therapy. Uh, that was a mix mm -hmm. between East and Western therapy. So you had encounter therapy and primal therapy mixed with Zen uh, practices and God knows what else. So it was very unique, and I saw my mother slowly change from a woman who I swear I've never seen with wet hair in the first 12 years of my life because my mother always got her hair done every week at a hairdresser. I had never seen my mother with wet hair, I kid you not. Whoa, really? In 12 years, in the first 12 years, I had no idea. I had no idea what a natural hair looked like. I really had no idea. <laughs> it was always done up for you. Yes, yeah, yeah. So a woman who cleaned her house in high heels with full makeup, imagine, right? Jesus. Yeah, as a single parent, yeah. It was... She was a conflicted woman who was had had her own rough deals in life and what have you. Uh, but eventually, um, me entering the teenage years, things just became volatile between her and me. And um, were your hormones raging? You're becoming a teenager, and I know, actually, not so bad. But it just was the feeling of being more and more conflicted. There was more and more reports from diff from the schools that. I wasn't fitting in, that I wasn't assimilating and developing like other people. I would have nervous fits and breakdowns. I would cry a lot. I was anxious a lot. So there were a lot of concerns. And at one point, and I'd switch schools around. So I went to two different high schools, one run by Protestant nuns for girls only, and then the high school that my mother taught, which was a normal mixed high school. And I felt safer at the nuns' place because, yeah, boys weren't a good experience. I felt safer in an all-female school. Interesting. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, but then again, at the same time, I also had these strange notions when my mother decided... I, she was going uh, for more therapy to Oregon uh, on the ranch. Uh, I was 12. Um, for me, that was a wonderful, wonderful time because I finally could just live on my own and be who I thought was an adult. So from 12 to 13, I lived in this castle on the top floor with the landlady downstairs who kept track of money and made sure I had groceries but I was literally home alone from the age of 12 to 13 let me get this right yeah 12 to 13 now who was paying my mom so she would send money yes, make sure right, that the landlady right, yeah. took care of so my mom had gotten an, uh, a modest inheritance her parents had died and she split up her inheritance with me uh, left my money uh, in the bank in Germany, and she took her share and gave it to the commune. 
Whoa. Just gave it in exchange for being able to live there and do therapy and work mm -hmm. there and what have you. Um, I ended up doing the same thing when I was 13. I wanted to join the commune as well. Was that because you saw the changes in yes, your mom? Yes, yes. The positive and, changes? Yes, and I've also participated myself in therapy and meditations because I wanted to. So with the same group, I had experiences as just a human being uh, of therapy, and I had the desire to become spiritually enlightened at the age of uh, 18, 21, something like that. Outside of seeing your mother now with wet hair, what emotional, physical changes did you see in her that were positive, that you were shocked of that change? I saw her hair wet for the first time. Right. No more makeup. I saw her without heels. I saw her without fashionable clothes. I, I saw her wardrobe slowly turn red, mm -hmm. literally, right. as she dropped uh, the Chanel suits and whatever else she was wearing, and they became more and more relaxed. Uh, my mother no longer became interested in academic scores. None of these things mattered. She just relaxed. She laughed more. She finally became herself, which was beautiful to see in just a very short time span. So she was, you, or at least the perce perception is, is she was trying to play a person, and yeah. now yeah. she's her. She became a person. And it's actually a person that was very interesting and loving and, f and fun and more relaxed. It was just her being relaxed, which is something I had not experienced in the 12 years as a child with her. I mean, for you to see that, yeah. I mean, how, like on an emotional level, were you just shocked that this is my mother? Like, I where, was relieved. Where, where have you been? I'm glad no, you are it, who you are. It wasn't where have you been. It was just relief that, oh my God, she she's going to be okay. She's she's finding her own happiness. She's She's going to be okay. That's mature for you at 12. Yes. To take that on and yeah. not be like, mm -hmm. damn it, where have you been? No. Because I certainly wouldn't have wanted her to be my mother for the next seven years. I just, no. It no. would have been too much. It was, it was already too much. The one and the few times she only hit me, I was 11. And that left all five fingers marks on my face. And I just knew then that we were not going to get along. Right. And keep in mind, I at that point, I was already aware of my mother's promiscuality. She had several lovers, and made she made a big fuss about hiding it, and that didn't work out. Um, but I, I learned enough about the power of a woman's body and what you can achieve personally and even success-wise that by the time I was 13, my Halloween costume was that of a prostitute. I thought that was the most ideal thing. I wanted to be a prostitute. I liked the power of sexuality that I saw my mother have over all these other men and whose lives she ruined as a high society woman. Very complex. Super that complex. is. That is unbelievable. 
to, to you know yeah. to take that on and see it and be like, okay, I understand. I understand your what power, she's doing, and I have it yeah. too. I mean, imagine, imagine that every day at two o'clock, a very sophisticated man would show up and have tea with my mother, and she was in love with him. He was a fellow teacher. And it was exactly from 2 to 3 o'clock every school day, Monday through Friday. On the weekend, I would see her thighs bruised up. And I would say, Mom, what happened to your legs? Oh, I ran into things. No, they weren't they were into S&M. They were into saddest, masochistic violence, sexual violent behavior. And I just could tell early on that you have power if you use your sexuality. And I like that. And I liked the idea. And it comes, well, you have to understand a little bit, I was sexually molested starting from the age of four to nine by an elderly man who, I mean, he was in his 70s. So I already had been kind of gotten very mixed messages about sexuality because guess what? It felt good. I was little and it felt good. And later on, it became mentally and physically conflicting. Sure. So I had understood that I understood about sexuality way earlier than anybody should have. And I had seen the mixed messages that I would see my mother give out in regards to sexuality. And um, when I finally realized, oh, I'm on my own. Well, I must be an adult now. And I was able to move into the satellite commune in Amsterdam. And I could enter that as an adult and to be treated as an adult and to have sex as an adult and to have all everything that an adult has, including having to work seven days a week, 12 hours a day. All that came with it. You want to be an adult? Here's the deal. Give us all your money. So my inheritance money went towards the commune. I had to actually at one point get a job as a 14-year-old outside the commune in order to pay for health insurance. It was very, very complex. Wow. I worked as a hotel maid in Amsterdam at 14 uh pretending to be 16 uh, just to get that little money for health insurance. Um, it was just a, lots of twisted messages. What were you getting personally out of the commune? Oh, excitement, belonging, um, the, the idea that I am part of the new man, the new uh, generation of conscious people who... <sighs> Who are the enlightened ones? I, 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 I was absolutely sure that I would grow up and die as an old woman in the utopian commune that was being worked on. So all of our work in Europe, all of these satellite communes, in addition to what was going on in Rajneesh Prom, they were all to work towards a utopia, mm -hmm. the city that never quite happened. And it was 
we were all 100% willing to give everything we had, physically, emotionally, spiritually, um, to make that happen. Now, is this like late 70s? No, 80, this what? was the Early 80s. 80s. Okay, this so not, was the 80s. Because I, I, watching the thing, there was the like that timeline. Yes, the okay, so you 78, the, 79, yeah. 80, 81. Okay. Things are starting so to... the 70s, you have to understand, that was the India phase. Right. The guru and the ashram were in Pune, and people would come there really just for spiritual enlightenment and what have you. Okay. Then they outgrew their place and they moved it to Oregon mm-hmm. um, and built Rajneeshpuram. And then it became, forget about enlightenment, now we're going to build a utopian city. Everybody, channel your energy. Work is now like worship. Right. Do, it was unbelievable. It was, oh, it, and it, I tell you what, they were very good in convincing us that work, if it's done out of love and and dedication that it's a beautiful thing we were told imagine cleaning the bathroom for god or for the pope mm-hmm. it's an honor it's a devotion it's part of a spiritual surrender and to really understand cleaning toilets is not down at the social hierarchy it doesn't matter what you do you can be an, a doctor, you can be a cleaning person, right, you are yeah. the same. There is no human differentiation based on what you do. What matters is you. And for me, that was incredible salvation because for the first time, people saw past my body, past the my age, past all these external labels, and saw me as me. My Sanskrit name is Bhavato. You might have seen it on the license plate on my car. <laughs> it means godliness. And my prefix is Dian. So my spiritual path towards enlightenment, as it was given to me by the guru um, at the time, was to reach the state of godliness through meditation. And that spoke very, very deeply to me. I actually really enjoyed meditation. I was one of the only kids who engaged in all kinds of meditation that were popular. Right. Were there other children? There other were. Kids? There were teenagers, and they all didn't give a fuck about right. That's what meditation. I was gonna say. Were like, were you the, the one, one who was yes, into it, and yes, the rest of yes. them were like, ah, right, right, exactly, just going through the motions. And I kind of was hoping that this would get me advanced in the system. I really did. I thought if I could show them how serious of a disciple and how dedicated at a young age I am, for sure, this will get me on a fast track. So for me... And did it? No. Okay. If I would write a book, it would have been hell-bound for enlightenment. You know, I really thought if I do everything they ask me to do and I become a very good disciple and I meditate and work with joy, it will get me up the social hierarchy and it will get me in a preferred status. And when it didn't, it crushed my heart. I was pissed off when I was 17 and I realized the references that followed me. So you you might have learned through, and I know this is all very complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, we were exchanged, meaning uh, all the the, uh, commune members uh, who were part of the big commune system, every three months we started to rotate communes. So the 
I was sent from the Dutch commune to the Cologne commune for three months, right before I finally had my turn to be transferred to Oregon for three months. So that happened when I was 17. And my final transfer to Oregon happened when everybody knew uh, the commune was falling apart, that Bhagwan was oh. going to be arrested. We are, they all knew that it was... See, that's what end. I was going to ask. What was your... What did you hear in, in Europe, or what, depending on what commune you were at? Right. What was happening in Oregon? Right. So in Amsterdam... It's the, it's the telephone right. game, right? Absolutely. So in Amsterdam, um, we switched building once. Uh, the original ashram was actually in an old jail, literally a jail that was hundred about 150 years old. Oh, it was. I, I'm, I kid you not. I... I our rooms were the old cells of prisoners. And it was an old Dutch prison that had four wings that would meet in the middle with three levels. And just like you see in the movies, the railings and the stairs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, we had one of the wings and our we painted our wing yellow and white and green. And we did meditations, but you could look into the other part. And this is where people committed suicide jumping down right because it used to be a horrible sure. jail sure but yeah i always joke i tell people yeah i used to live in a jail <laughs> for the first three years and then wow. they, then so the city the city wanted the jail back for whatever reason so guess what the commune bought an old monastery a nun monastery so we moved from a jail to, to a, a monastery <laughs> <laughs> was there no strip malls you can move into? My you Lord. Know, uh, no, right. So it was just wild. So from there. Oh, but wild, I mean. So at that point, we did not know the sinister part. We but were adults now looking at it. Yeah. When you're 16, do you are, do you think that's crazy in any way? You're, Absolutely. You're, you're in a jail. You're going to a monastery. Absolutely. Can, imagine when my own daughter turned 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 and realizing I had been sexually active since I was 13. And I considered myself as an adult. Yeah, I mean... And I insisted on being treated as one. I would get very pissed off if people uh, treated me as a kid. I'm like, treat me as for who I am. And thank goodness people got that. And I did get treated as such. But what my point was, when they trans, when we got transferred from one commune and country to another, there was a little reference card, I found out later on, that went with us. Meaning, eventually from the monastery, I was sent to Cologne. Not that I wanted to go there, I had no choice unbeknownst to me a little little small index card also went with me and during my three months in cologne this is when information started to leak out what what a mess rashishpuram was and they were kind of on a tr on on a mission to, for transparency and this is when we all learned oh you all have a file and there's certain things written about you and i demanded to see my file this little card and all it says that they considered me after four years unreal and phony that was 
the two words that was on the card. And I was so upset that I called, insisted to call the Dutch commune, the leader. And I said, what the, f what the fuck is this? You guys never told me that. You never gave me the impression. I gave you all and everything. And you giving me a re reference that says I'm unreal and phony. When it was very clear, if you're not a happy, joyful person, you would get kicked out of the commune. And I, I try to be that, and then I get that stupid referral. So I was actually the undesirable one. And Why do you think they thought that of you? Because... Who knows, right? You know, well, maybe? you know what? Because, I mean, by nature, uh, I'm a very depressed person. I have major depression. Okay. I've been diagnosed for 40 years. I wasn't diagnosed back then. But I think my psychological struggle was evident and nobody wanted to be my parent nobody wanted to be my psychologist and I didn't want that but I guess I was just a burden and that was painful that was I gave you four years of everything and this is the impression the final impression I but got. you really are giving your soul your body your sweat your blood everything and money ten thousand ten thousand dollars at the time was a fortune I, for you. It was a fortune, and I was told that it was invested into the ranch. So, Russian Shpuram. So, when the whole Russian Shpuram thing fell apart, some of the money invested was a, they were able to liquidize it. My mother got part of her money back. My ten thousand was disappeared. No, it was stuck in the Rolls Royces that the government took and the jewelry and all of that. So, yeah, that's just so sorry. I got to let us So that's why you have a Rolls Royce out front. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> did you did you feel I felt Did you feel abused and 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 taken advantage of? At that point at 17, yeah. I got to the point where what the fuck I can't put it any better than that. Right, yeah. It was literally... I mean, that should have been a good t-shirt right, for you then. Yeah, what the fuck? Yes, I still want that t-shirt today. <laughs> uh, that's when one of the many curtains fell down, the many illusional veils, if you want to call it, if you talk, you know, Middle Eastern ideology you know the seven veils mm -hmm. you got the dance of the seven veils and one veil so it's a dancer who dances with seven veils and as she reveals her true nature one veil after the other drops kind of like with mm -hmm. this picture up there did you feel they were all ripped away <laughs> i mean it sounds like you're just i was just in 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 shock and later on a psychiatrist, no, seriously, a psychiatrist 10 years ago finally d diagnosed me with complex post-traumatic stress syndrome because the devastation and the disappointment of this is what my hard work gets me. Oh, my God, what a messed up human I must be. First, my mother had the impression that I was a worthless human. I didn't measure up beauty-wise. I didn't measure up academically. And finally, she just left me. So that was the first message. And then the second message that the spiritual group who I thought loved and appreciated me didn't think so about me at all. Slam bam, thank you, ma'am, was more of the feeling. Like, wow. a, you know, like a quickie. Uh, uh, you know, literally, that's how I always 
equated it to. And it went back to the feeling of being a prostitute. I really, by the time I was 17, I really felt like, well, maybe I did just prostitute myself, you know, for survival. Sure. Because they definitely did not think highly of me. So because of all that, I decided, damn it, I'm going to go to Rajnishpuram. I finally earned my ticket to be there, even though the thing is falling apart. Give me what I finally uh, uh, am being owed And this to. is your first time going to America. It uh, wasn't the first time. Oh, okay, so you have to remember. I don't. Well, maybe you don't remember, but uh, every year we used to have world celebrations. Right, right. in July. June, July, yes. Yeah. So as so you would go. Yes, I would go first as uh, by myself as a thirteen-year-old. Your first time thirteen by myself, to... solo fly to America. Passport. With, Passport and Pan Am, the world's worst airline. Oh, my, my goodness. Horrible world airlines. Yes. And then just about every year uh, through the commune, we, we flew as the entire commune to spend a week in Oregon. Well, what was that like as a 13-year-old coming to America to come to this? Amazing. Right? Your version of Disneyland at the time. Yeah, it was amazing because it was within the bubble of the red people so you would be at the airport and you would see all these people in red and malas on them and you just felt like part of a new man's movement you know it was really in it felt so empowering and beautiful i felt like the values of celebrating life and being positive and being vegetarian and into organic uh environmentalism it just encapsulated all the good principles that I had. And I was a vegetarian for 30 years. And guess what? It ruined my health. So I'm a carnivore now and very fat. <laughs> As you can see, I was very skinny all my life. But seriously. You have a beautiful body. Uh, not according to my doctor. No. <laughs> they want me to lose 20 pounds. But <laughs> hell with them. Um, yeah. well, okay, As a 13-year-old, when you go there, it is, was, is it... A magical feeling yes, that you it, yes, feel yes. like, okay, this is it. This yes, is it. because I could see as a 13-year-old, this was a desert. This was a no man's land. And these people transformed it into something with joy and dancing and organic farming. And they did an unbelievable job. In four years. Um, and what so, they built was phenomenal. Clarence is the one who bought all the trees. Keep all the trees that you would see in the videos right. and the films. He bought them. It was his job to go to Portland, Oregon, and purchase purchase these things. So he was in charge of the greenhouses, and my mother was in charge of him. He grew flowers and took care of the you know tree orders. My mother would collect the flowers, and she would make the flower bouquets, including for Bhagwan's residence. So she had a very prestigious job, and she was very good at it. And it was literally teaching us to live as luxuriously as Zorba the Greek with spiritual principles of Gautam the Buddha. So we had marble floors. We had the most luxurious and the best that money could buy as far as materialistic stuff. We weren't poor. We were really living lavishly. 
and it the felt structures wonderful. were unbelievable. The infrastructure oh, was unbelievable. My God, it I mean, was beautiful. Everything was done to the highest quality of standards because you had Hollywood superstars and people with very exquisite taste. So that's where my mother's past of being a sophisticated woman of exquisite taste worked in beautifully. Wow. Right? Yeah, it circled back around. So she didn't wear Prada and Chanel clothes anymore, but she could use her exquisite taste to create these amazing flower arrangements that were in the restaurants, in Bhagwan's uh, pr private home, just all over the place. So that was her exquisite job. And my husband grew the flowers. She cut them and made arrangements. And yeah. Did you ever meet him? Bhagwan? Mm -hmm. Am I pronouncing it right? Bhagwan. Um, indirectly. So, as you know from the videos, uh, once a day he did a drive-through yeah. for the, the Rajnish Puram. And everybody would be lined up, namasteing, dancing. There was music. And it was just your one moment, once a day, just one moment of eye contact of the guru slowing down, smiling at you. And if you had a rose, you put it on his car. And I learned doing one of those world celebrations, if you hang out with all the big groups, you don't really know if he really sees you. So what I did, I would go way, way, way on the rural road where there was nobody else. And I stood at the side of the road. And of course, he slowed down and just for me, gave me a namaste, looked at me and smiled. That was the only time I ever had that. Now, my mother had danced with him um, towards the end uh, when he had special followers uh, as a private audience. So that's kind of as close as she got. So she was dancing and he was like right in front of her right, doing that. Yeah. And my husband, he sang for him, meaning he was in the music groups. Mm -hmm. um, but I, he has not actually had a one-on-one -on -one audience. He had an incident, uh, if you would ever listen to all the discourses that were given by Bhagwan at the end of Rajnish Puram. So uh, um, um, uh, commune members uh, could uh, uh, put questions in with him and he would answer them. And it was just an intimate, small couple of hundred people uh, in Buddha Hall. And my husband would attend, but what he used to do, he used to fall asleep during lectures and he would lay down and snore. <gasps> and there was a, a complaint, Bhagwan, isn't it rude if disciples fall asleep and snore during your lectures? And it happened, and it's actually on, on record, it's recorded, where you could hear my husband snore in that audience. And Bhagwan said, leave him alone. He's more enlightened than you are. <laughs> yeah, so uh, nobody ever woke him up again after that. So if we learned anything from this podcast is your husband's a bit of a snore. Yeah. <laughs> and considered highly favored and enlightened. Right. When you were leaving, was it? Did you feel... Leaving where? You have to when, when you're leaving Oregon, when, okay. you're, when you're leaving the World Festival, mm -hmm. did it feel like you were being ripped away from like Oh, joy? yeah, because I wanted to be there. Everybody wanted to be there, and we couldn't legally and right. space-wise. And it was very painful. 
Uh, and it wasn't so much uh, seeing my mother because I wouldn't see much of her at all. We would meet at the pizzeria or at the ice cream shop for a quick sh chat. And then she had to work. I was there on vacation for a week, but, you know, she had to work. So you didn't even have much of a no. reunion when you would no. just go back. Uh-huh. It was just kind of seen like a distant relative, yeah, yeah, not yeah. really now seen mom. Was, yeah, no, it wasn't mom anymore. Wow. Mom was never there anymore after that. Maybe more when we all became normal again and I had children and, you know, I would visit her mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. Amsterdam. Uh, and now, of course, that she's an old woman, yeah, now we have a pretty good relationship. Sure. Yeah. So your last trip to Oregon to get what you wanted, you're going hell or high water to, mm -hmm. to get what you want. And that what was, was the, that like? Okay, it was I mean, that, are you going yeah, with the revengeance? Kind of. It was kind of. It was very surreal. So it was December, and because it's really fallen apart yes, at this point. Yes, and let me tell you how much it's fallen apart. So when I was there, um, there was the moment where Bhagwan and his entourage left the ranch for the last time on the pri on a pri private airplane to Charlotte, and. I was there at the little small airport waving him goodbye as he went up into the private plane. And you can see it in some documentaries. You don't see me. I was one of many in the audience. But that moment when he left Rajinshpuram for the last time and eventually got arrested by the FBI and poisoned and it finally killed him by the time he made it back to India. But that last farewell... I was I was one of them. And Whoa. then things fell apart really quick. Once the master left and all the truth started to come out and then we heard, oh, by the way, the entire ranch has been wiretapped by the FBI under the Reagan program. And uh, several sannyasins have actually been undercover FBI agents who were initiated, got their name, got their mala, and they participated in commune life, and they were FBI spies. So I kid you not. Um, this is when we were told, uh, guys, it's time to leave because the FBI is going to close down the place, blaming Bhagwan on all the stuff that Sheila did, the immigration fraud, the weapons issue, the poisonings, all the atrocious behavior that she did while he was supposed to be in silence, meaning he removed himself from everyday operations and let the lady uh, be in charge. So the social experiment failed. And the social experiment was this. What happens if for once the women are in charge? Mm -hmm. Throughout history, it's always been the man in right. charge of religion and everything, and they all messed up. What happens if indeed you... Uh, give feminists what they always wanted, put women in charge spiritually and practically and politically. We should get a brand new humanity. And guess what? Power corrupts. Doesn't matter what gender you are. So the women got in charge. Every supervisor on the ranch and in the satellite communes, they were all women. There was not a single male supervisor of any kind. Really? Not one? And it was done on purpose. Like I said, it was a social experiment. Right, right. What happens if you put people in charge who have meditated in the 70s and 80s, had done a lot of therapy, and are supposedly clear of their baggage, and are 
able to live in the present moment completely detached from their past. This ought to be amazing. This is the way the human humankind can survive. And when I when we realize women fuck up as badly as men do, and that everything just fell apart because of a few greedy women. That was that was that was a triple double whammy of a slap in the face. Power. Power is power an amazing corrupts. thing. Power corrupts. It is an amazing thing. Everybody thinks like, oh, no, women won't do that to women. People will do anything to anybody. Power corrupts. Because power is yeah. is mm-hmm. ultimately like the most addictive drug. Mm-hmm. And I don't care if these people are Zen masters and so-called enlightened beings. I, I My personal experience is, no, it doesn't work. It really... I have not met a commune that has really worked. Well, there are some ancient communes that are now 40, 50 years old. Findhorn is one of them in Europe. But so it's very few that have ever been able to use true democracy in a way where it actually works and doesn't harm people. You know. So you're a German citizen yes, at I this am. point. Mm-hmm. You're in Oregon. All hell's breaking loose. What's your plan? <laughs> okay, I was supposed to go fly back to Cologne. <laughs> You're so cute the way you say that. Like, I was supposed to. That's what they told me to do. And guess what I did? I ripped up the ticket. I said, uh-uh, I'm here now. I am not going anywhere. So I, my, I happened to have a little bit of money. My mother was kind enough to give me a couple of hundred bucks of her money. And literally it was overnight when someone said, they're selling the school buses, the yellow school buses that were used for transportation. If you want it for 100 bucks, you can have it. I said, cool, I take one. And then the problem was, oh, heck, I don't know how to drive at all, anything. Have you ever driven it? No, 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 nothing, not, oh. no, no vehicle of any kind. So I had to find people uh, who were willing to drive this thing. I didn't care to wear two. I just and said. They're big. This is a big school bus. It's a normal big yellow school bus. Yes, a huge one. You couldn't have found a minivan? <laughs> no, they weren't selling minivans. They were selling the school buses. Uh, so, yes, a couple of people said, yeah, sure, we go. We literally, we were encouraged to leave overnight in the snow at nighttime out of the right, Oregon it's, mountains. It's December. You guys it's are in snow. central yes. northern yes. Oregon. It's yeah. not like you guys no, are no, no. by the sea. In the high mountains, high yeah. desert mountains. So it was snowing. It was nighttime. And they told us. If you want to get out of here, you need to get out of here now because otherwise the FBI could seize you and your passport and you will be in a lot of trouble. So, yeah, we did. So it was something like four, maybe six of us total in that bus. And I had no idea where we were going. I didn't even know the geography of America. I knew nothing. I was just like, okay, cool, let's go. What possessions do you have on you? A duffel bag. Of just clothes? Yeah, winter clothes. 
Red clothes, that, that. Red winter clothes, a little small duffel bag, and my passport, oh. and um, nothing else. Knew nothing about anything. So what ended up happening, um, we t they took their time, I think in about one week, we made it from Oregon down P the Pacific Coast Highway all the way to Laguna Beach. And one, they told me one, we got there early in the morning, like at four or something, I was told, okay, here's a hundred bucks for the van, uh, for the bus. Uh, thank you. We like to buy it, but we, we're going to let you off here because in Laguna Beach, there's a meditation center, also a Osho or Bhagwan meditation center. So you'll be okay there. So I had a hundred dollars. I had my duffel bag. They dropped me off at Laguna Beach. And by the time the sun rose, I was all bundled up in, in snow clothes, and it was 90 degrees. And I had to make it Laguna Canyon <laughs> to the meditation center. Guess who was the cook there? Uh, Clarence. Bill, Clarence. Yes, I was going to say Bill Clinton. Totally yeah, no, off. no, no. Yeah, you really messed up. No, the guy from the ranch. So he had left a little earlier, whatever his story was. And he thought the commune were there was a safe place. Oh, he just thought this was a thing, something to do, yeah, okay. after the commune. So we didn't actually hook up at that point, but um, long story short. But what, what were, you, were you thinking as you're going there, like, okay, this is my safe place for now, but what? Just for now. But I, what's your plan, plan? No, we didn't. You know, we were trained to never think ahead. We were trained actually not to think at all. The whole the whole thing of enlightenment was to go beyond the mind, beyond thinking. So anybody involved in academia and thinking was actually being called a mindfucker. You you mindfucking. Right, right. Get out of the get out of the headspace. But so, you're a 17-year-old girl in a foreign country right. in Laguna. Wearing right, all right, red. Right, right, yes. I mean, you're sticking out like a sore it was, thumb. It was a mess. What was your accent at the time, or did you have one? Or how's your English? Um, so I learned English together with Dutch, so it was a very heavy Dutch and German uh, connotation, more now than I have okay. at this point. Um, I ended up uh, hooking up with a bunch of other sannyasins who had fled in Tustin who had like a little house. And I was able to rent uh, half a room. <laughs> Long story short, I would take uh, a three-hour bus ride to Laguna Beach for Sunday meditation events and what have you. And eventually, yeah, since Clarence was the cook, um, you want to be boyfriend-girlfriend with someone who can feed you. Sure, right. That for survival was excellent. And as you noticed, he's a very... Um, radiant person uh, who's usually the center of attention wherever he goes had lots of girlfriends and he decided to wanting to go travel he had a little van and he chose me out of all the women to go and everybody hated me this 17 year old biash uh. gets to go with a superstar and i was like <laughs> yeah right so he was his perception as a superstar 
or just a, a very outgoing person, very personality? outgoing person, but everybody knew his superstar, superstar status in the ranch as one of the singers for the master, and also that he sang with the drifters uh, and all that. So it was very much known. Plus, I mean, he's just had the aura of right. A shining star. I mean, when you walk into the room, yeah, you can totally feel him, yes. right? Yeah. And he will take over. And that's why I was <laughs> like, maybe we should have this interview at uh, uh, at work where he doesn't take over. <laughs> An he- unmarked warehouse. <laughs> it's it's interesting that like you're mature enough to feel comfortable enough in a foreign country to figure out that there's going to be a happy ending or you're no, not you're not that. you're not even terrified that. like I, no 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 you yeah are you missing a big part <laughs> you didn't we didn't get to that i had a suicide attempt in tustin oh so you okay i had a suicide attempt so you're that worried that i, I was that depressed so before I hooked up with Clarence officially and then we took off and went traveling for a couple of months all the way to, to Boulder. Um, I, I was severely depressed because I had only my, that $100 that only lasted me so long. I literally would eat one avocado a day for quite a long time because I had no money. I tried to get a job, but then I found out about the social security card. And thank goodness I had some people who taught me how to make up a social security number and kind of how things work here in America. But I could never get gainful employment. I did eventually, as a German housekeeper, I advertised in the penny saver for for old ladies in Tustin. So excellent German housekeeping, that brand of being German and good quality work, worked out for a benefit. So I was able to work under the table and get a little bit of money and save a little bit of money. But there were, what you you were so depressed you had a suicide attempt. Yes. Um, so yes, um, what I did was take a lot of sleeping pills, and I was just, I, I was just totally disillusioned. And keep in mind, AIDS was still a big, big issue back then. And um, right, it's happening at that point. Yes, early eighties. Yeah, absolutely, coming alive. it was really, really, really a scary time. And uh, you know, going through the AIDS testing, and I must have tested fifty times, and I've always been clear. Was that goodness. because you know it's it's very it's shown a lot in the documentary that it was a there was a lot of sex there was a yes. lot of nudity which is going to lead to sex when you're absolutely yeah and so was that something that when did you start to get worried about that or hear that, that okay term so AIDS? yes so the term aids uh first came about when i was still in the jail <laughs> so we're talking about age four 14, 15, so that was still the jail in Amsterdam, not the monastery, but still the jail. And this is when Bhagwan actually said this will be the biggest threat because he believed in sexual exploration and freedom and all of that good stuff. And this is when everything changed. So all the free sex pretty much ended right then and there. And I'll tell you how, how incredible, stringent things got. The message from Oregon was no more kissing, no more oral or anal sex, condom use at all times, plus surgical gloves. So, And we had 
workshops that showed us how to put a condom on and then when to put on the gloves and afterwards taking off the condom with one gloved hand, putting it in, you know, like, a, a, you know, a very surgical way of dealing with that. I mean, you and I went through that early 80s yeah. hearing AIDS. Yeah. I think people today don't realize, like, People were shocked. Like it was they were, a they were like, "You can get AIDS from a toilet seat if somebody." Like there okay, was so, so much this weird. This is when rubbing alcohol, isopropyl alcohol, came in. We all carried literally little, little spray bottles like this mm -hmm. wherever we went to the bathroom. We would disinfect the doorknobs and everything. The we toilet, toilet, everything. Seat. Yeah. So we we became very. We were taught to put a couple of drops of bleach into dishwater. Uh, in uh, any time we did dishes, so they were very, oh yeah, uh, hygiene was high priority because they just didn't want to lose anybody who had AIDS. And the problem was anybody who tested positive actually was put into isolation and eventually had to either leave the commune or live like in a leopard <laughs> co mm -hmm. colony on right. the ranch. So literally uh, some really wonderful people ended up being outcasts who couldn't be hugged anymore, who couldn't have any contact. Because again, we didn't know was AIDS going to be yeah. transmitted through tears or through sweat. Breathing. Like there were so many weird rumors. Well, we just didn't know. Right, just we like didn't with know. COVID. We yeah. just didn't know. But it was devastating. So when, so what we had, all of us wore the mala, right? Uh -huh. The necklace that identified us as sannyasins. Then we had a commune beat that identified us as commune members gold, well, bronze for the American commune, and silver, fake silver, uh, for us European commune members. And if you, when you were transferred to another commune, you were on a two-week uh, celibacy track because you were tested for AIDS. It took two weeks for the results at the time. You had to wear an orange bead in your necklace to indicate everybody I can't have any sex because I'm in the process of being tested. Wow. Super. So, okay, yeah. that, that's super weird, but it's super it's efficient. Super, it was very efficient. Yeah, like for, you know, you get that status of cult and open sexuality and you just think it's like orgy 24 seven, but they were, used to be right. But they became a very aware the 70s. of these. That was the seventies. Right, right. Of a monster mm -hmm. AIDS mm -hmm. and to actually take the, safeguards to take care of you so the commune doesn't just get completely overrun with it wiped out yeah, yeah that is amazing and keep in mind um contraception was vital because they wanted no one to be pregnant if you were pregnant uh, you had to abort or leave the commune. They did not want any children to be brought into the world because the world is overpopulated and we're all going to die mm -hmm. very soon anyways. There was a very fatalistic reality, literally. How do you handle contraception in an orgy? I'm naive You'd be on way. the pill. You, you okay. are on the pill. That's what you were. Okay. But then we didn't have orgies anymore in the 80s. Right, yeah, that's that what I'm stopped. saying. Right, yeah. What you're hearing about the orgies, that was the 1970s mm -hmm. in Pune, India, and in therapy groups in Europe. Have I been in an orgy? Yes, as an 11 year old. Let's not go there. 
mother was there too. Let's not go there. Let's not oh. go there. But yeah, the once and only, right? Um, but for the rest, never any group sex of any kind. Nothing at all. I mean. So you and Clarence get in his van. You guys head to wonderful Colorado. Mm -hmm. What's that like now? You got yourself a cute little boyfriend. Oh, no, I got myself a very highly desired older guy who knew the ropes, who I knew if I hung out with him, I, I could survive. Now you could say, sugar daddy, since he's 23 years older than me. Back then we had no term. He didn't care about my age. I didn't know about his age. We only found out, actually in Boulder, that I was underage. Well, at that time, I finally turned 18. But to imagine, ooh, he could have gotten to jail to hook it for hooking up with me as a 17-year-old. And I didn't know that in America you, you right. have these rules. I mean, it's a little bit was a little bit different in, in Europe. But, huh, right? Uh, so, yes, it felt, uh, for me, it was quite terrifying. I, 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 I found America to be a very fake and just over the top society. I loved nature and the geographical features and the fact you have many different cultures and climates and countries put into one big country. But Americans themselves, hi, how you doing? That fake everything about Americans. Ugh, it was just the ick factor to me. Did you feel like you're always, though, on the run at Absolutely, that point? Absolutely, and a complete outsider. What a weight on your shoulders yeah, that must yeah, have been. Yeah, yeah. And then we, we end up with the immigration thing. So, yes, right, yeah. I did eventually, I, you know, as you know, I destroyed my return ticket to Europe. So, <laughs> of course, you know, I had to very quickly really get uh, my green card status going and that was just oh my goodness that in itself was quite a challenge but I did and no I did not do it through marriage I did it on my own merits eventually so that's a cool you know success story how much work me. was that pre a lot. you know that's it's pre a you know laptop and getting on the oh, internet and it doing was, it I mean there must have been a just, ton yeah, of work yeah just yeah anyways um very very I was I was actually for the first time really happy. We had our very first little place together. No furniture in it, but it was adorable. And him and I started living like normal people. And he built a recording studio together with another friend. And we had actually a functioning recording studio, Sugarfoot Recording Studio in Boulder, Colorado, downtown Boulder. And he was, he just made one recording and there were great plans and then his mom got sick oh, um, her, his mom was dying of cancer and stroke and she lived in south central LA black woman and Clarence flew out to LA and back to Boulder every month and eventually he told me look we're gonna I'm gonna have to go be with my mom she can't be on her own anymore and do you still want to be with me? I said, sure, I follow you wherever. Oh, my God. We moved to South Central L.A. at the end of the 80s. I am a young white woman. In South Central L.A., we're talking about the end of the 80s, Rodney King, shootings, blood and gore. Height of gang activity. I mean, it was... 105th and Figueroa. 
think about this. Oh, hundred and fifth and Figaro, right down from Century Boulevard. Uh, I learned Saturday nights you don't sit on the couch, you sit on the floor because bullets whizzing by. I have seen people cut, shot, running through the apart you know, apartment complex. Infants who died in the apartment complex because mom was a drug addict. Um, police rate, drug rates, where everybody, including us, had to go outside and be lined up on the building uh, because, well, so many people either were users or dealers. And then I, I had my experience of racism in a most bizarre way. So whenever Clarence and I were in a car, remember he was driving, mm -hmm. I was in the passenger seat, the police would stop us for no reason because black people get pulled over all the time. Guess what they thought? Guess who they thought I was and who Clarence was? I'm going to guess as he thought they're, you're his pimp. Beautiful. You're the first one who ever got that right. Yes. Yeah. I'm the whore, he's the pimp. Right. But when I one time stopped uh, stopped off the bus stop, I, you know, I got off the bus and I had gone to a job interview, high heels in a business suit, police stopped and said, ma'am, are you lost? Did you get off the wrong bus stop? Why are you here? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Do we need to get you somewhere else? Exactly. Yeah. And that to me was the first time ever that I had experienced racism or racial profiling of any kind. It was already bad enough that Clarence told me early on, you cannot walk to the liquor store by yourself in the daytime. I said, why the, why the hell can't I? In Europe, you walk all the time. He said, you don't understand. You cannot as a young white woman, walk alone to the liquor store. People will think you are a prostitute. You're going to get shot. Right. Or picked up or taken. Mm -hmm. or. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, that was after the, my bubble of uh, the commune where all was good. There was no crime. There was nothing, right? You could walk wherever. I was like, I hate this country. I really hate it. And but, I don't understand South Central L.A. is not the entire United right, States. Right, right. But it must have been extremely stressful you for you. You tell me. You tell me. It was just like... I mean, that must have... <laughs> it was just like, what the hell did I... My God. But at that time, you know, you grew to love each other. It was no longer uh, just boyfriend, girlfriend. It was, no, I cared deeply about him. I loved his mom. He cared deeply about me. He noticed that, wow, for any young woman to give up everything and be there with him for his mom. And I physically would bathe her and all that, take mm -hmm. care of her. It changed a lot in Clarence's heart. I think that's when the gigolo officially <laughs> left. <laughs> You know, because he was like, "Wow, what a woman she is!" Yeah, I agree. Yeah, you're in, you're you're yeah. in for the long haul. Yeah, I was in for the long haul at that point. What are you doing for work? At that time, yeah, uh, I worked for a health agency to be a CNA, a living CNA to okay. elderly people. So I had a long-term client in Arcadia, an old lady, and. Um, I lived with her during the week, and then I would come back to South Central L.A. Clients would pick me up, and you know I would take care of his mom. But yeah, that was that was our staple income. Wow. Yeah, Clarence then started going into the movie business, so he worked as an extra, which was cool. But okay. I never did. Right. <laughs> when you had I had your the thing. real job. I, yeah. <laughs> 
when are you discovering that that college or going to college is an avenue for you or an interest for you? So, so early 2000s, sure, sure. right? And yeah, well, no, that was still the 90s. Um, his mom had died at that point. And I've realized if I want to get ahead in America, I need at least the GED. So I learned about the GED. Right. Remember, I dropped, well, you didn't know, but I dropped out of all schooling at the age of 16 in Europe. So I was a high school dropout. Uh, I ended up studying for the GED and I passed it the first time and they said, your English writing skills are better than native speakers. And I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> so that's when I then got the interest of into community college and I was starting community college, Southwest College. Okay. And well, then life derailed me, uh, meaning I got pregnant or we got pregnant along. Yeah, things kind of uh, uh, went away from education. But then when my children, my two children were born, I had them at the age of 24 and 26. So when my youngest child was two or three years old, yeah, so in my uh, late 20s, that's when I decided... I want to go back to the universe, uh, to college. I was just really interested. And I went back. I went what on. was the interest? The interest was, that's a good question. What was the interest? I think just the idea that I can really only progress if I have a bit more than just the GED. I think it was just curiosity. Because remember, I had that ne- negative stigma of right. being mentally retarded. Literally, that's yeah. what I was. That's what everybody's telling you. Right. You're, you're, you're short bus. You're, yeah, you're no yeah, good. Right, yeah. You have dyslexia. Yeah, you got right. all kinds of issues. All kinds of mental and psychiatric but there's issues. A... It was curiosity. You know, I. it's actually a good question. I don't really... For some reason, something just was like, I got to do something in life unless I want to be a CNA for the forever. And I didn't want to do that. And curiosity brought me back to community college. At Harbor College, they tested me in the disability department. I actually said, look, I want to know what's going on with me. Am I not, is my IQ so low? What is wrong with me? And they did a lot of testing and they said, your IQ is 130. Actually, that's pretty doggone good. Yeah, I have a pretty high IQ. And they just said, you have just some severe processing uh, problems. But, you know, you're so creative, you can just really fool anyone. <laughs> so they were actually able to specifically pinpoint these and these and these are your weaknesses and here are the skills to level it out Mm -hmm. and once i had the tools to level the playing field i enjoyed education and i realized that the teachings of the commune were bullshit you can't drop something you never had if you never had a mind that was developed how can you drop it uh, and that the mind is not your enemy, but you got to be taught how to think. Because I'd lived on default up until that point. Mm-hmm. And to realize the mind is not your enemy, the mind can actually be a tremendous ticket to something awesome. Uh, for the longest, they had the slogan, education changes everything. And 
my goodness, I saw that happening with me. So once I got an AA degree, I was completely floored. I never thought, what the me, AA, oh my God. It was just amazing. And then um, they immediately transferred me to Dominguez Hills as a student. I they, they didn't even ask me. They just said, okay, you're transferring. And I'm like, oh, okay, fine. And then what about what I got <laughs> they to Dominguez? shipped you off shipped like off. cattle. Yeah. And then I realized, oh, my God, I am at a university. I remember looking at Dominguez Hills, just a sign on Welsh Hall, see, California mm-hmm. State University of Dominguez Hills. And I remember crying, just saying, oh. Where are all these teachers of first, second, third, fourth grade? They should see me now. That was kind of the big F you. I'll show you. Because now it was like, oh, yeah, you all think I'm stupid and I don't amount to anything? Uh-huh. Yo, it's on. It's on. And education was now on my terms because I liked it. And I had learned how to learn. And it was just really... I discovered anthropology, and anthropology is just everything about humans, just everything they produce, everything they can think of, everything about humans, and it's not judgmental. judgmental. You know, anthropology has some very, very clear principles, and that is open-mindedness and understanding an issue from the insiders the natives perspective not from an outsider making judgment but you've got to ask the natives Mm -hmm. how are you experiencing life and you don't want to have the attitude of ethnocentrism my country my way of life is the only good way you know, kind of, and that really struck a chord with you. Absolutely, interest. the idea of cultural pluralism—that you know, I might not actually agree with what you guys are doing, but explain to me why you do what you're doing. The openness, to right. me, that was the for the actually for the first time to be actually really not being judged. Not being judged. I'm not stupid. I'm not phony. I'm not this. I am intelligent because I have only A's and B's because I I became a perfectionist. But to be actually not labeled as anything, but just a human who's curious. And it was the belief of one professor, anthropology professor, Dr. Gascu, who said, okay, so when are you going to grad school? I was like, what? <laughs> What is this grad school you're talking of? And why? And one of the final courses. I'm a mom. I know, right? Right. Yeah, so I that's what I was wanting yes. to ask you: is mm-hmm. how are you juggling being a mom of two, mm-hmm. a wife, and a and a college student yeah. at yeah. that age? So I mean, you're not you're not was, 18. Yeah. So at that point, the kids were 12ish, going into their teenager years. Right, that means their work. Uh huh. Yeah, for sure. Um, this is when financial aid was a wonderful gift because I couldn't do what the other students are doing, and that is to work and to be a student and to be a mom. And every- No, I couldn't. So um, student loans were great, but it was amazing to show to my kids because I have a severe math disability. I don't... Me and math concepts, it's just my brain doesn't think like that. I just that. fight. Yeah, it's just I'm great at writing, but math is not happening. So my kids would see me struggle with algebra and statistics at that very kitchen table right here. 
in in this house and I would be crying and still making it through it and you know going to the park with them and taking all my homework with me and they remember that and Alima my daughter my eldest she is a Dominguez student herself now you know she's actually just came back this semester to finish her bachelor's because she remembers like hey if my mom can do that I can do that now my son no he only has a high school education and he is just not interested in higher education but for me education meant personal empowerment to learn how to think and that it's not a bad thing right if you can turn it on and off right yeah. You don't stay in that thinking mode that you can go into your heart and into your intuition. But when needed, you can also turn that head on, kind of like an Alexa <laughs> or Google, <laughs> get what you need to do and then turn it back off. But you got to remember the switch. You can't just stay forever. It's not good forever to stay in the headspace. Right. When you graduate and you think, okay masters is that <laughs> is that just crazy to even still say totally you have to realize that my grandfather on my mother's side who was a doctor um a very prestigious german doctor who actually worked as a forensic uh witness for the german courts after world war ii um Ooh. he said one is not fully human unless they have a phd Meaning your full potential isn't reached unless you get the highest level of education. I kind of thought, well, that's a fucking slap in the face. I'm still not human. I only got a master's. I mean, what the hell with this guy? May he turn over in his urn. <laughs> Grandpa can go to hell. Oh, just about, yeah. Oh, his ashes can fall off the shelf or something. <laughs> So I, but you did it. I did, yeah. And uh, I, I piggybacked on research that Dr. Gasco had done. It was Chappas. She had um, worked with campesinos, rural farmers, and I had gone with her and as a student and then as a grad student. So my thesis was medical anthropology. What do these very poor Maya um uh, indigenous people do when they get sick and it was a very simple thesis it was, it was only 120 pages long only 120 <laughs> yeah, pages yeah yeah it's it's in a little book uh, actually a german company picked up my thesis and made it into a book so but anyways um it that in itself was super empowering to actually now experience mexico and ruralness and again it's something i had experienced when Clarence and I went to India. Yeah, we did that. Um, the, my daughter could, got con uh, conceived in India. Okay. <laughs> in 1992, Clarence and I were actually in India. We went to the original ashram and all that. Um, well, it really must have struck a chord with you two. Absolutely. Yeah, right. It did. <laughs> well, guess what they roped him to do? Claire? There was a theater, yeah, there was a theater department at the ashram and they roped him in to direct a play called Hollywood Superstars. So we spent our month in India 
for a play, and I'll show you. We have a picture of it. Yeah. Oh my God, it was just. That's why I never got to see the Taj Mahal because of. Because you were working, Peyton. Well, he was working. I was. Yeah. Anyways, long story short, um, I had seen really poor people, such as in India, being incredibly happy. And to me, that struck a chord. If you can live literally right next to the cemetery in a little shack and be brilliantly happy for no reason just because you're alive, that I admire. And I saw that in the rural people in Chiapas. And, uh, you know, and when I went to Morocco and all that, I saw that in people, you know, that the poor people, the simple people had this brilliance of a radiating happiness just because they're alive and all of a sudden it just it just it just kind of validated it kind of put it full circle you know for me and yeah it really when you walk across that stage to get your masters (laughs) what are you thinking Oh my! Because there's that slow walk, right? Oh, You're yeah. waiting. Yeah, I'm looking at my graduation. Yeah, pictures and right there's right. you know, and then they say your name. What yeah. What are you thinking? What's going well, through your head? <laughs> you don't believe it. Um. So you have to realize. So it's up there. The top one yeah. is the masters. The lower is the bachelor, yeah. right? So I was still writing my thesis. I wasn't quite finished. But there were two other people out of my cohort who were already finished. And I realized if I would wait until the next time they do the graduations, I would be the only one. And I didn't want to be the only one, you know, of my group. Mm -hmm. So they allowed me to actually get my degree early. So I felt a bit like a fraud because I still had to finish my thesis off. So in a way it was amazing, but I felt like a, like a, like an imposter. Um, And then I had the degree and then it was like, now what the heck do I do with that? So I graduated 2011, and I didn't start working as a teacher until three years later. What did you do during those three years? I volunteered, as I was told to do in when I was in grad school. Okay. Uh, so I became docents of two historical houses, one here in San Pedro, and the other one is the Banning Museum. I became a docent, um, you know, a tour guide, Mm -hmm. and um, I started volunteering in three archives, Historical Society of San Pedro, of Long Beach, and CSUDH archive. So I thought I was going to get a degree in museum management or maybe become a librarian, and then I thought maybe I would become an archivist, and... um, I realized that all bored me to death and it wasn't the thing. And uh, long story short, I had an opportunity to teach a class and it was amazing. Uh, When you finally teach in the same classroom that you were as a student for the first time and you're on the other side of the podium, (sighs) it was super emotional for me because... To realize, here's the girl that they never even thought could get a high high school diploma. And now she is grading and writing letters of recommendations for students to get into grad school. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. It was just finally... I 
had a purpose other than uh, being a parent and a physical worker. You know, I really felt that, wow, who would have thought I had any skills besides cleaning toilets in me? <laughs> Was it the terrifying that first, first day walking into class? Absolutely. And you were the teacher? You didn't take a desk, oh, yeah. but you took a podium. Yeah, right. It it, it got even worse. Uh, so I have super high anxiety. And when I'm very stressed, I get panic attacks, literally. I have actually gotten panic attacks, literally full-fledged pa panic attacks as a teacher. And I was able to uh, play it off saying, oh, I have, an, I have asthma. So I, that's when I started always carrying inhalers with me. And I would just, you know, I would just say to people, I have, an, I have an asthma attack. But it's actually panic attacks. Oh, sweetheart. And they come, they come without any notice. And I know it's when I'm super stressed, super, super, super stressed. Part of my brain just checks out and I go into hyperventilation and stuff like that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a tough rat race being a lecturer. Really. Yeah, it's it got to be. It's super, because you never know from one semester to another, will you have a job? How many classes will you have? Will it be enough for student loan forgiveness? And I'm happy to say I got all of my $85,000 forgiven this year. <laughs> ah, so good for yeah, you. I did the 10 years. I ended up doing the 10 years. And yeah, Clarence reminds me every day, every day, Oh, my goodness, who would have thought? Who would have thought we ever would get out of poverty? Because raising the children, I would go to food banks. It was really the survival thing stuck with me for many, many years. We didn't get out of it until about 15 years ago. So to be at this point in life and finally starting on a 401k, I mean, it's itty-bitty small, but, you know, when you have been finding yourself all your life and you're just now building up your retirement in your 50s you know that's <laughs> a little bit late in the game mm. but it's like wow but you're starting yeah well i've been here for yeah. 10 years but you know i think the main thing for me is to have become not happy but content as a so-called normal person not being a nomad anymore, not doing any, not going anywhere. I, I'm literally just a normal person with a husband and two kids. We had two cars at one point and two cats. <laughs> <laughs> we still have two, two grandchildren. But the idea that I've been with Clarence now for 38 years. We've been married for 32. The reason we got married wasn't because we had this need to have a certificate or something but it was i was pregnant with a lima and i wanted health insurance and same names for everyone and tax benefits so right. this very simple i when when i decided alima is my was my third pregnancy i had aborted two other kids and uh, south central la you don't want to race you don't want to be pregnant there you don't so yeah so I had two experiences of abortions, and um, which gave me a lot of mental guilt later on. But when Alima knocked on on my belly door, <laughs> I was like, "Okay, fine, fine, come on in, fine, fine. Let's do this. Let's do this, right, right." But because of her, we got married, and um, it's amazing. We actually stuck it out together because of the kids. 
there was many times where I was like, dude, bye, we're done. But I didn't want to repeat what my mother had done to me. You don't freaking leave the kids unless it's absolutely necessary. So right around when my daughter was 12, 13, I really was like, I don't want to know what more than this. I want something else. And instead, I did a lot of therapy to figure out why can't you make this work? You know, they said you have, there are 10 good things and 10 bad things about a person or five and five. Mm -hmm. And you got to see which one is stronger. And basically, it always worked out that now, you know, you if, if I would leave this person, then I would be like buying a new pair of shoes. And you have to learn the five and five or 10 and 10 all mm -hmm. over again, right? Right. S and we realized because we just stuck it out and yes, couple therapy and family therapy that we're smooth sailing now. You know, there's not this hot, fiery life anymore but it's a it's a slow slow smoldering fire that is very very sweet and i get to see a man age he's 78 now and yeah experiencing the threshold into a later age myself and i never thought i lived this long are those lessons learned yeah those are lessons learned yeah are you in a happier place today you feel good I'm content. There's a difference. Happiness to me is too high. You know, oh, I'm so happy. I'm happy. That is impossible to maintain. I am content. It's neither here, up high or low, but I'm okay. Yeah, I'm good. And you're an author. Talk to me <gasps> about am. that. When do you decide, like, I'm going to write a book? Well, the first book, like I said, is my thesis. That right, that's up. mandatory. Right, that's mandatory. Well, not no. I mean, it's a company who will decide. <laughs> hey, we like your we like your paper. Uh, can we publish it? Right. But um, you have to write it. Yeah, you have to write the thesis. True. But this is you're on your own. You well, just decide so I want to be an author. Yeah. Well, no, no, I didn't. Uh, none of that. So come on, it's a feather in the cap. Let me tell you. You want to hear it or not? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is a feather in, in my cap, and I treasure it. But no. Uh, so this about five years ago, I was asked to teach a psychological anthropology class, or wow. it was offered to me at Dominguez, and I was like, "What the heck is that?" <laughs> Had no clue. But I'm like, sure. I'll take it. So I did, and I had to study up for it. And the only book that was available was like, it, it reads like the Beijing phone book. And I hated it, and my students hated it. It was written at a grad school level. And wouldn't you know, one day I get a, a phone call uh, at the office from a publishing company saying, hi, do you like your anthropology book for psychological anthropology? I said, no, I hate it. Would you be interested in writing your own? I said, what? Well, we're looking for someone to write portions of it and then to have articles, you know, a, a reader. And I was like, well... I need it for my own class, so sure. I It was never that, oh, I'm going to be an author, I'm going to be this or that, but I needed a textbook that I could use. And then the pandemic happened, and during the pandemic, well, I had lots of time, and I wrote, and a lot of the chapters, especially on aging and death and culture and all that, was extremely relevant because of what we were experiencing. Um, and it all worked out. We all survived, and the book came out, and I, uh, the students really, really like it. I had several uh, preliminary editions that I tested with my students, and they would give me feedback. And 
Do you do you take the other book, the, the original book you were working on, and dissect it and say, okay, this is what I can improve on? You or know, did you start from scratch? I start from scratch. Okay. Yeah, basically, I I I, uh, I started with the premise that okay, here are the articles that I like, and I was using the advanced book, bit of a guide to see well, what do I need to cover? So I got a bit of an idea. I need to figure out the historical stuff, and then come up with topics that tie in psychological issues that you look at from an anthropological perspective. Mm-hmm. Super cool. And in that process, I learned about cults, believe it or not, when we talked about psychological oppression. And this is when the Wild Wild Country series came out about five years ago. Yeah, when I was when I turned 50. So about five, maybe six years ago. And I started watching that and it made that connection to the cult and my realization oh snap, what I was involved in was a cult and we could have all died like in Waco, Texas. Mm-hmm. When the Waco, Texas happened, uh, Clarence and I and everyone, even in the movement, we were terrified because that could have been us. Sure. So Waco, Texas, as you know, was again a very exclusive cult. Same thing as with the Rajnish Puram, the FBI uh, infiltrated it and surrounded it. And what they did, they started shooting and the cult members shot back. They defended themselves and the FBI blew up the building with children and the leader and yeah, a couple of, yeah, a lot of people dead. And that was pretty much like a year or two, I guess, after the ranch had closed down and it terrified us because we realized that shit have, could have happened to us. I didn't know about Jonestown because you didn't. I, well, at that time, no, I didn't. In the eighties, nineties, had okay. no idea. Uh, but now, as an anthropologist and teaching magic and religion class, and you know all kinds of other anthropology classes, I, I found books and religion books, and I found the Rajneesh movement in it, and I, I really started collecting connecting the dots and what is amazing to me is that my experience is the complete opposite to Clarence's experience really Clarence was an elite person even in the commune system normal rules didn't apply to him you know he was the desired superstar with this golden voice that was singing for the master he was one of the very few black guys charismatic and sweet from the heart he had ladies just throwing themselves on him right and left so he was a superstar wherever he went so his experience has been nothing but sweet and beautiful and he didn't care about all the legality and negative stuff I was the worker bee. I was one of the, at the bottom, and I didn't have any of these privileges. I I had this crappy reference card that followed me, right? Right. So if you have an interview with him, you will get an amazing story, and it's awesome, but it's, yeah. A different. different perspective. And to this very day, and he, he knew that you and I were going to talk, and he reminded me, tell Matt that this is your story. Sure. It's not everybody's experience. Right. It's like college. Everybody has a different experience. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. When you watch the documentary, 
Was there anything that you saw that you were shocked or was that kind of what you saw coming? How did they lay it out? You know what? Um, if you watch the documentary Wild Wild Country from the very first episode, you get the attraction, what attracted people to just Baguan or mm -hmm. Osho as he was later on called. And it really the man's brilliance and remember he was a philosopher who was a university professor so very intelligent and very deep inside good stuff good stuff and you could see why people were enamored by him and then in the series you could slowly see how it morphed into this bigger thing and then you had Sheila and then she messed everything up and it all fell apart and to watch this episode after episode the pain the mourning of what this woman took away from all of us and the potential and it was very emotionally devastating. It was really bad. I had a very bad, very bad meltdown. It was, yeah. Very, Watching very it? Bad. Yeah, yeah, very bad. Uh, yeah, very, very bad. I'm sure. Because it was the realization of, yeah, I've heard a lot of this stuff, but we didn't really want to listen to it, and now I'm seeing it, and it's presented in an excellent way. I really think the filmmakers did an amazing job to present it as neutral as they could. You right, really right. don't hear the voice of the uh, the producers. You hear the voice, the inside, the um, the emic perspective, mm -hmm. the insider's perspective. Because they took a lot of what the town folk were going through mm -hmm. in Antelope mm -hmm. and then with Sheila, mm -hmm. and, you know, and she's kind of... But then we have a lot of these um, conversations with right. key people. Yeah, district afterwards. attorneys and yes. people, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, But yeah, to see from... Feeling it from how it was from the inside, and then to get it combined with hap with hap with what happened on the outside, and to see it all laid out in front of you, it's like you have someone playing your life in front of you, and it just hurt, especially if you realize. Sheila is now running uh, uh, um, uh, a little hospice in Switzerland. and She kind of uh, got off scot-free. Oh, totally, totally, totally. Yeah, she, and, and <sighs> it does come off that way, yeah. that, that she kind of escaped, unscathed. Absolutely. When she Everybody else paid but her. Yeah, yeah. Was, there was a lot of havoc, but she yeah. got away. Yeah. Now, it's interesting that you live with a man random. I mean, the chances are you had a better chance of winning the lotto than to fall, to stumble upon a person in Laguna. <laughs> you, you know, fall in love with him. You spend more than 30 years with him and you guys were at or in an organization at the same time <laughs> and your mother. So you have this three Tri people, yeah, right? Part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was your mom's experience? Right, because if I interview Clarence, I'm going to get his perspective, as you say, completely different than yeah. yours. So my mother's experience was that she was always a paid guest at the ranch. She never got 
commune status because legally she wasn't married to an American and all that. As long as she was able to pay to be there, to work there and to take groups and therapy, uh, she was fine. But uh, she never got to be a commune member. However, she stayed after as a caregiver of the property after the FBI seized it. There was a small amount of people uh, who had to kind of... Uh, keep an eye on the property because it was massive it was massive and it ended up being turned into a military compound of some sort i mean they guys you guys created dams and and and, and, and we've seen the wildlife come back and the rivers right. and all that yeah 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 so yeah she was there for a couple of years and i was doing the california thing and then she <laughs> went she finally had to leave of course and she went to amsterdam and met a random normal non-involved uh, dutch man and she ended up marrying him and living with him a very unhappy life because she reverted back to the housewife role and mm. back into the boring social thing. And uh, yeah, 30 some years later, he died. And now she's alone as a very old woman, very physically ill, very much alone prisoner in a flat that she inherited from her husband. And what a sad ending. Yeah. Of a when you social, yeah. put your head down on the pillow at night, are you? Do you kind of sit there and go, like, "Wow, it's been a wild fifty-year ride." Like, never would think a little, yeah, yeah. little German girl from a village yeah, no, living in yeah, a castle would. Yeah, right. Stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Come to America and be a professor. Well, and even even that, um, I still felt like an imposter all the time. Even when I was teaching, as in the, my early years of teaching, I felt like mm, I'm not really a professor. I don't have a PhD. That PhD thing is messing with me. But I know at this point, I don't think I'm going to go through a PhD. For what? So I can teach some more? <laughs> all I knew when Lily came to me and said, hey, I need to, we're doing a story on this person. I need a picture of her, and I always ask, you know, what's the story? What's the angle? Mm -hmm. I was like, wowza, I got to meet this person. How interesting is she? And you have not disappointed <laughs> one bit. I, this is the best part of my job. I'm really? so glad yeah. we got to meet. You are fantastic. You light up a room. <laughs> you got a great laugh and a sense of humor. Thank you. You're a belly dancer. Was <laughs> always, it's never once was. a belly dancer, always, always a belly, a belly dancer. dancer, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, thank you, Matt. This has been wonderful. You are fantastic. I don't know. I mean, keep in mind, I had three suicide attempts, I've been in a psych ward twice. Yeah, I've been on antipsychotic medications now for 30 some years, so it's been a tremendous struggle to assimilate back into normal life and to be content with it and to actually find what am I good for besides cleaning toilets? Yes, I was a great German cleaning lady and I even thought maybe I should build myself a statue just so I feel like a human and to find my human worth in a, the most unexpected way really surprised me and I never thought ever that I would be wanting to be a teacher or wanting to be involved in academia but I also knew I didn't want to be 
cleaning lady or someone who wipes butts for the rest of her life. I was good at all of it, right? But Your kid's butts, but nobody else's now at this no, point. Yeah. And now at 55, I feel my body age very, very quickly. So there's a lot of things I physically can't do anymore. And I tell you what, a lot of it had to do because I physically worked so hard in, in industrialized kitchens as a 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 70 year olds carrying these huge pots with potatoes in them and really messing up my back. Uh, it, I yeah. mean, because I look at you, you look really fit still. Mm -hmm. Like your arms look very firm. Like you look like, <laughs> yeah, I mean. No, uh, see, so what happens when uh, as a very young person, you do a lot of physical hard work without having learned body mechanics. Right, yeah. I literally, get away wore, I wore out my discs and my stenosis and all that. So, that's why I can't dance anymore because there's a lot of yeah muscular stuff. Um, and I worked in the nursing home industry for twelve years with picking wheelchairs, up, picking, people. moving. Yeah, but at least I can say it was a hell of a ride and it was worth it. And if I wouldn't have had these intensive four years, you know, I would have missed out on a lot of amazing experiences as well because it wasn't all tears and sweat it was a lot of laughter a lot of good times sure right a lot of celebration of life and, and you got a beautiful partner out of it two wonderful right. kids yeah i mean think if you had just stayed in and germany three cars look at that i got three cars out there <laughs> no germany you know what it never felt it was a home because there was no one left you know, I mean, my parents divorced and yes, my father knew about me and he took me to a family reunion. And so people knew that I existed on this side of the family, but they never cared about me. And I was just like, there's nothing left in Germany. My mom had no more family. They all died. Father's side didn't give a rat's ass. So it was like, why go back to ultra conservative Germany at the time? You know, right. It was very different. It was very different in the 80s. And it wasn't in a, I wasn't in a big town like Frankfurt, but a little bitty uh, tourist town. So the, there was nothing left for me to go to. Didn't want to go back to the castle. <laughs> that was, that was, yeah, just wasn't enough in life. So I would say at the end, if you just hang in there, just live long enough. Something, something might happen. And something might not happen. <laughs> when do you when do you teach next week? You got a class Monday or Tuesday? I do. I want to sit in. I want to say I went into your class. Hung <laughs> <out with you. laughs> oh, we're talking about death and culture. Oh, wow, that's cool. Yes, either on Professor the, uh, Ulrich's class is so uplifting. <laughs> it's death and culture. We talked Tuesday. about aging and culture. The, well, if you would look at my book, you would see it has a. I looked. Oh, good lord, it's a read. You actually have got your hands on it? You, you got it in your office. But you didn't read it. Well, no, but... <laughs> yeah. No. I'm, you, can go, you can go to the reserve desk. There's a copy there. <laughs> I'll check it out. <laughs> I'm sure it's a heavy read. Actually, no. No? Uh, so here's the thing. So because the original book, that the only book I had to work with, like I said, read like the Beijing phone book, I wanted something that is a normal person's language, okay. not academic fancy crap. Yeah. So it is written so that even none, and because most of my students are either no anthropology or they're no psychology, but haven't either 
take heaven crossed over. Mm -hmm. So I needed to explain all these terms from two disciplines at the basic level using very basic but not dumbed down language. So the people that reviewed the book um i had him from all walks of life including my my son and his now wife because i wanted to make sure that even people who only have high school diploma understand it but that people with a higher education don't feel that it's dumbed down so i think i came to a good okay. medium now clarence has never read it and he doesn't want to read it I'm like, you know what? I'm going to read it out loud to you. Whether exactly. you want to hear it Tonight at dinner, Friday night dinner, we're starting chapter one. In the acknowledgement, it says, I'm sorry, Clarence, for forcing you to listen to my stuff. <laughs> That's what marriage is. It is, right. If you're a good husband, use it, you listen and support here. Yeah. But it. so just to, as a last one, the book actually has not been adopted by anybody else. I've in the okay. year that it's been out, I, I I'm the only one using it. And it's not that it brought me fame and money. I get something like twenty five cents per copy sold. <laughs> so it's really all for my own satisfaction. Okay, I didn't get a PhD, but I did create this ac academic golden egg. Good. And it helps me and my students and if anything else happens, fine. If I ever get a second edition, yeah, there will be changes. And yeah, it's always room to play with. Huh? You never know. But so you know what? If I die tonight, I'm good. Don't do that. I don't. In I said if. You're not paying attention. You're not a very good student. Out you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. You're so welcome. This has been fantastic. You're the best. Oh, no, I don't know about that. I'm one of the best. No. <laughs> Thank you for listening to my conversation with Sanja Ulrich. If you enjoyed this episode, please click the like button and become a subscriber to the podcast. Remember, you can follow the Just a Good Conversation podcast on Instagram, and you can find all of our past shows on the website at justagoodconversation.com. Thank you for listening.